0: Welcome to Trending in Education, Mike Balmer here. Excited today to be joined by Sunil Gandaria, the Chief Innovation Officer, Head of Mastery and Adaptive Products at Age of Learning. He also serves on the Board of Trustees at the Children's Institute, a Los Angeles-based nonprofit that provides early education, behavioral health, and family strengthening services to families in need in the area caught up with Sunil in person. We're now in Zoom, but it was very exciting. I actually met someone in an analog setting. We're going to talk all about that before we get to that. Sunil, welcome to Trending in Education. Hey, Michael. Great to be here. Yeah, it was great. We got a little bit of time together down in Austin at South by Southwest EDU, which is nice. It's a surprising treat now to actually uh, share space with other humans. We were down there for South by Southwest EDU in Austin, which was a really interesting set of conversations. and aggregation of humans. And uh, it was nice to get a little bit of time with you and Sunil and kind of kicked off some of these conversations. We always begin by asking our guests for their origin story. What got you to this point in your professional life? Spin us a yarn, tell us a tale. What got you to this point in your career? Sure. I do love
1: the term aggregation of humans, IRL. it was really nice to be with other people and other people really committed to making education better for everyone. So it was great to be in person as well, Mike. Yeah, let's talk from a life perspective. You know, as you reflect back, you, you recognize or realize that you get lucky sometimes. And I think the most obvious luck that I had was winning the genetic lottery, which meant that I was fortunate to be born to educated parents. They were from India who uh, really just uh, decided to take a risk with only a few dollars in their pocket to move to the U.S. and provide opportunities for their children that they may have not otherwise had. And that risk that they took has really shaped the different work I have done. I started my career doing what my dad did. I was a CPA. He was a chartered accountant. I moved into management consulting. That really gave me a broad base of understanding of a strategy in different industries. And and then I had this incredible opportunity to work at the nascency of the internet and content uh, with Walt Disney for 11 years, which gave me this fantastic opportunity to move my family to London to start and run a new global business for what is arguably the world's greatest brand. And it was at the nascency of mobile devices being a platform for interactive content. Mm -hmm. It gave me a real understanding of the intersection between new technology and content and how to really engage and bring pleasure and and happiness as as, you know what Disney does. And that led to my role here at Age of Learning where I serve as Chief Innovation Officer as you said. And what this role now has allowed me to do is learn a great deal about education and build and manage a really passionate team who are developing educational technology products that we know can really have learning outcomes for millions of kids. And the interesting thing is that it really, it, in some ways, my mom was a teacher, so it kind of brings me back to working with educators like my mom, where I started my career as as a CPA, like my dad. So it's a full circle
0: for me. That's good. That's good. I like uh, I like narrative uh, closure there. Although there's there's new chapters to be written as well in terms of the story because the work you're doing at Age of Learning, folks may be more familiar with ABC Mouse as the learning products that are out there. Can you catch folks up on what that product offering is and what your focus is there? Sure, sure. As you mentioned, Michael, so
1: ABC Mouse is this incredible direct-to-consumer digital education product for early learners. It has been used since its launch in 2011 by over 30 million children and has earned the trust of parents who have made it the leading early education digital resource in the U.S. So we were building on strength with really an understanding, not only what kids like to learn, but what motivates learning for them as as we we pursued some of the R&D efforts we started almost seven years ago to build what is now the future really of the company. And what we think is driving the future of educational technology, certainly for young learners which is personalized
0: mastery learning systems that we've been developing. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, we've spent a lot of time on this show talking about ed tech ventures that are focused further down the line for the learner. But at the same time, folks frequently are citing research that indicates that intervening in the early childhood years has the most net positive impact. And the flip side is also true where adverse circumstances in those early years really can set you on a a much more negative trajectory as a learner. Can you provide a little more depth to that narrative? Can you put this into context? Yeah, sure. What is
1: clear is that in terms of neural connections, the majority of them for a human happen in the first five years of life. And as such, there's a real opportunity to develop both language, math skills, and social emotion skills during those ages, and oftentimes parents, especially those from low-income households, are not given the right background. They don't have the experience in terms of what they may need to do to help their, their children. Additionally, there's been tremendous amount of longitudinal research that's been done by Nobel Prize-winning economists like Dr. James Heckman at the University of Chicago that have found that investments in early ed yield more from a societal value perspective, it's almost a 13% return, a return on those investments versus investments in educational education elsewhere in the life cycle. There's just this real need to examine from a public policy perspective, how we can help lift all boats and really unlock human potential by Increasing investment in early ed. And we're finding the same thing through ABC Mouse. You know, what, what is interesting is over the past several years, we've done over 20 studies, and, and continually we find not only does it drive significant gains in math and reading, it also helps develop learner identity and this idea that I'm a learner and I can take on new challenges. And it really ties into things like growth mindset where a child can enter a situation and doesn't look at it as, as saying, hey, I don't know this. It, they, they look at it as like, I don't know this yet, and I can learn this. And, and it's really embodied in how they think about and approach new problems.
0: Yeah. And then the design thinking that goes into these products, we, we talk about that again in the abstract on the show a bunch of different ways, but you know, you're actually shipping learning products that are highly interactive, that are motivational. I imagine it requires a cross-functional collaboration amongst a bunch of different folks to really build a successful learning product. Can Can you walk me through a little bit of how that works?
1: Yeah, and this is this is something that I, I know, Michael. You worked with Bruce Axberg at one time. He talks about learning engineering quite a bit. I, he's he's uh, been a big influence in terms of our thinking in terms of how you organize to solve these future learning problems. The way we approached it, I believe, is, is really perfectly in line with this idea of learning engineering. And then what we did is um, we, we approached it as a, as you were talking about, a really as innovation as a cross-disciplinary team sport, mm-hmm. where we placed the learner at the center and we had master teachers define the curriculum that a child needs to learn. Uh, we brought in cognitive scientists who brought a real understanding of how we as humans learn best, and our design researchers tested our assumptions through user research. And we were consistent with this from, you know, first prototype, paper prototype, to bringing kids in three, four, five years old, and and having them interact with what we were creating to ensure that they understood it and it would work for them. And then our artists and designers create rich stories and environments to both engage and provide context for the learning. And then because we are doing science and we wanted to learn from what we're doing, our data scientists ensured that we had the right telemetry in terms of the collection of data so that as we gathered this across millions of students, we would have unprecedented insights on what children know and how we can help them learn more effectively. And what's really exciting about the work we've been doing. Is that it's working. We, we have evidence for both my math academy product and our, our nascent my reading academy product, which is we're starting to bring to market now. And we're building, you
0: know, a, a pretty incredible evidence base that it works for the purpose that we intended. The adults who are also part of your ecosystem, some of your stakeholders include both parents and educators. And I know increasingly, you know, getting these these types of products to educators is something that's increasingly becoming a focus for Age of Learning. Can you expand on on those two sets of stakeholders? Let me pull back to to the why. And and the why, you know, we just talked about the learning engineering
1: approach that we use, but let's pull back to why we're solving that problem. There's a lot of talk about the pandemic, Michael, and and the effect it has had in terms of learning. It's important to understand that the learning gaps or the opportunity gaps started well before the pandemic. And if you look at the US education system, the Department of Education conducts a, a nationwide assessment known as the Nation's Report Card. And as a report card, it really reveals how poorly we are doing. Two-thirds of our kids are not proficient in math or reading by the time they're in fourth grade. Mm-hmm. So as a country, you know, we we have And like a D in math and barely an F in reading. Mm -hmm. And and this is data from 2019, well before the pandemic. And if you adjust the lens to look at income and really you start to see where the roots of our equity problems in society really start Mm -hmm. as nearly 75% of children from low-income families are not proficient in math and nearly 80% are not proficient in reading. I mean, it's a systemic failure. Mm -hmm. And because of the pandemic, our kids from low-income families are expected to have two times the learning gaps of those of the peers from their higher-income families. And this problem really extends to society as children from poor-income families are half as likely to be ready for school. So this, you know, we talked about the first five years and the importance. Well, if you come from a low-income family, you're not going to be ready for school to start with. And you see what happened as they move on through school and get to proficiency in reading and math. And if you start connecting the dots from education to lives as adults, you really see the loss in potential. Hmm. You, when a child is not proficient in reading, it's gonna quadruple the likelihood you are gonna drop out of school, uh, high school. And not graduating from high school means you will earn a third less over your lifetime. And as you take that, that look at that from a macroeconomic perspective, Clearly, there's an effect on the individual livelihoods, their families, their community, but there's this massive societal cost. The opportunity gap between high and low income students costs the US economy what is equivalent to the entire GDP of a country like Belgium. It's Mm. half a trillion dollars a year, it's 3% of our GDP. And unfortunately, what it means from a social mobility perspective, really, the statistical reality is being born to a poor family means you are likely to be poor as well Mm -hmm. and and it's a travesty and it's definitely something we need to focus on fixing
0: yeah and then the interventions through interactive entertaining education i've heard edutainment is a word that uh that may have some triggering for you so i do want to hear your take the reason it lacks intentionality and we're, we're an education company and
1: we are through and through focused on outcomes. And, you know, as we thought about this learning engineering approach, it was to solve a problem. It wasn't to mix a few, a few educational moments and entertainment content. It was to solve a really important societal problem is that our kids are not reaching proficiency yeah. in either math or reading. What can we do to solve that? And it's not about, it was, it's it's about focus. It's about building off of a research base had a, a lot of analysis of how we do this and how we get to the right answer. And, and it's interesting as we, we think about education and the model shifty going forward. And I know the, the question that you had asked previously was about how do we rethink this and how do we benefit both teachers and parents as we yeah. do this? One of the things I like to talk about or think about, Michael, is this idea of like, you think about how most of us were educated or most education happens now. It's based on a time and seed model Mm-hmm. Where we're taught through lessons plans based on what average students are expected to learn during a year. Right. And it's a very much a one size fits all model. And the data really shows that it's broken. And you look at some great research that Todd Rose has done on it. I don't know if you had a chance to yeah. end of average, mm-hmm. but it really is, is this basis of that we're all the same and it's a factory model and it requires students to adapt to what and when a subject is taught. in. Our premises is that it, we need to use technology to develop a system that adapts instruction to each student, where our role as educators is not to measure progress by time spent, but rather to ensure that every student masters the material they need to learn. And that's really what we've built with our personalized mastery learning system.
0: Yeah. And it's really interesting because you do hear a lot about this for adults around products like Newton. Personalized learning is something that EdTech has been talking about really since the turn of the 21st century. We haven't quite cracked that nut with adults, although arguably Duolingo is getting a little bit of shine now. Like there, there are new models emerging in adult education that are showing some promise. It is interesting when you think about a young learner developmentally you know, they are making all these connections that you're talking about. They're they're actually a little more apt to assimilate new stuff. Can you talk a little bit about the design thinking that goes into designing for this audience? And then maybe just reinforcing uh, my previous question just around the stakeholders engaged in the learning experience, because, you know, frequently it's not just the child, it's also the child plus some adults in the context.
1: Yeah, it is indeed. And if we start with Context being important, and that's something we we recognized early on in terms of our learning engineering approach. One of the key elements that we brought in to our teams were game designers. And effectively, game designers approach creating context and learning, usually learning about the game. And the people we brought in were from the u, uh, University of Southern California, which yeah. is one of the, not only a leading game design school in the u s, but it also, had a real penchant for looking at serious gaming. So gaming for impact. Mm-hmm. And, and as we thought about the problem and what we wanted to achieve with our product and, and our system, it was looking at how could we create a system where we could engage kids in subjects like math, which typically is very hard for teachers to do because we moved to notation really quickly versus approaching it as a problem solving activity, which really math is. and. It's really. It, it can be quite engaging. Mm. So, how we did that is we had our game designers working with our data scientists and our psychometricians think about how do we set up context for learning. So rather than move quickly to notational, this is a worksheet and you have to solve this on a worksheet. We presented the problem with these really incredibly cute characters that kids interacted with and really grew really to love, which called Shapies. And we place these shapies in situations where the kids need to use math to solve the problem that these shapies are, are facing. For example, yeah. at, for early math learning, you need to understand the idea of counting on or cardinality. And so you could place the shapies. The activity might be, you need to place 20 shapies on the boat because they want to go somewhere. So how do you get those shapies on the boat? So you have to count out loud. And... What we did through this, this team-based approach is that we designed each of the games that the kids play as, as an educational game, but also as an assessment. So we used Bob Mislevy, who's written a lot about evidence-centered design. So we used that research to design the games as assessments so the kids feel like they're playing games. In the background, the data that we're collecting is an assessment, but it's not a right, wrong type of game. We also incorporated one of the best ways to learn and what a tutor would do in a a live situation, the ability to provide the kids really just in time, scaffolded feedback Hmm. and, and so what we thought about a lot and in a lot of our work is based on, you know, Bloom's theory of two Sigma, and this is a whole idea that you know, one-on-one tutoring with a mastery-based approach leads to the best outcomes. And the two sigma refers to two standard deviations better than traditional classroom teaching. So we've incorporated that, that kind of thinking, the kind of research into this game-based approach that not only delivers results, and then we can talk about outcomes further, but also drives engagement because the kids actually enjoy doing it quite a bit. Yeah, so how do we help teachers? We've been really thoughtful about not only teachers, but all adults. And, you know, I talked about placing the learner at the center, right? And that's, that's where we started. All learners exist in an ecosystem. And so we build on top of the, the data that's generated by the student as they're having their individualized instruction and provide that data through dashboards to teachers as well as to parents. And those dashboards not only tell the teacher how much they've used the product, but where they are in their learning trajectory and, and provide material that the teacher can use to further differentiate instruction for each one of these children. It also groups the children into cohorts so that kids with similar learning skills, the teacher can then use the materials to teach in a small group lesson, which may be more effective than trying to do one-to-one, you know, classroom of 20 kids. Yes. That same information is going to the parents, so the parents can see exactly where their kid is in terms of their learning trajectory and what they can do. You know, things around the house, uh, math talks they can have, for example, with our my math academy product that is also going to help the child continue on the journey. And a lot of this is just simple support, saying, "Hey, I heard you learned this at school today, mm-hmm. and you want to count out count to hundred with me today, or do we do this activity?" As we're setting the table, uh, if you're looking at cardinality and number of place studies, you need those types of things really will help the journey in terms of the child feeling not only that the learning is important, but that it's something that they should be proud in and that their parents care about, their teachers care about. It's really tight to where they are versus, you know, for a lot of parents. And I know, Michael, you have a young child, you probably don't know what your three year old should or should not be. Knowing about math at this time, and yep. if a friend comes in and their kid can count to a hundred, you're going to be like, oh my God, why does my kid not count to hundred?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the, the tools are really interesting and I really love the idea of the learner identity and building in the right kind of reinforcement and self-talk so that, you know, every child should feel that sense of accomplishment of struggling through something hard, you know, putting forth that effort. And then, you know, having the support of folks who care, I guess you can build some of that into the emotional design of the the product itself. It is a, well, edutainment may be a triggering word, Like kids do have fun while learning using these products, correct? You know, kids have fun learning. One of the great discoveries
1: that we had on ABC Mass, and I, I don't know if it's that great, we just know that from the research we've done before, learning is intrinsically motivating. You don't need external factors necessarily. You, children, adults, you feel accomplishment when you learn something. What what we strive to do is really a balanced approach that we, we reward the learning and, and match our extrinsic motivations with what is intrinsically happening with the child. And we help them name it, that I can do this thing. Mm. And, and that further is reinforced by a teacher who can then also reward yeah. uh, the child or, or recognize, you learned this. That's awesome. The same for the parent. Pulling all that together really does help a lot in terms of building learner identity. We've seen it in our research.
0: Let's talk about research. I hear y'all do a lot of research. You've said several times, evidence-based, a lot of your bigger organizations, uh, education companies, are building that instrumentation, because if it doesn't work, folks will go elsewhere. You, know, you have to g- gather evidence from your products, but then also there's research trials. You're operating at a scale where you can learn from the data that's being generated from the usage of your product. Can you talk about that side of things? Yeah, it's essential to the work. And we talked a lot about being research-based
1: and it, we work with Digital Promise to get certifications on both uh, what we talked about in terms of Todd Rose's work around learner variability, as well as on research-based design. And and I think it's essential that the work is based on research and and it's deep research because there are so many different factors that go into learning. But more importantly, on the other side of the research basis, you want to ensure that your products work. Why build a product and try to sell it to a school or or to uh, a consumer if it's not going to deliver the outcome you're promising. Yep. And you look at what we've done with My Math Academy. This is a program that we've proven in multiple efficacy studies to significantly accelerate math learning. And it already meets the highest tier of evidence as established by the Department of Ed. This is ESSA tier one evidence. And we're just starting to bring the product to market this last year. And we continue to gather evidence, including last year. You know, when we talked a little bit about the pandemic mm-hmm. and most of the news is kids are behind math learning, especially kids from low-income households up to seven months behind. We had a pilot study last year in a low-income district, Title I district in the Rio Grande Valley called Harlingen. And this was four-year-olds. And my math Academy, it's a supplemental product. It's 45 minutes a week of usage, typically three times a week, 15 minutes a, a, a day. And 98% of the students that use this program regularly achieved grade readiness. for kindergarten. That in itself is great data, but what we're really, as we go back to this idea of personalizing learning and what the future of learning needs to look like, the data that we're really interested in is that 20% of these students demonstrated they were capable of mastering math skills that were at the first grade or above level. And this is a low-income district where a lot of times expectations are low in terms of what these kids can do and what how they're able to perform. And the teachers were amazed as these weren't skills that they taught. And often they don't have the resources to even teach them. If kids get ahead in, in a high needs classroom, a lot of times the teachers don't have the resources to focus on that. Yeah. So course. what we're excited about when we look at research like that, it, it proves this thesis of learner variability that we have this incredible opportunity to unlock potential that through traditional class and traditional teaching methodologies would not otherwise have been recognized or may not have been recognized.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then this gets us towards the future casting part of the conversation now, where looking ahead, you know, as someone who's been focused on early learners, in some ways that makes you more of a futurist. By the time those, those kids are graduating into the rest of their lives, uh, it'll be pretty far down the road in the future. Any perspectives, either very specifically or more broadly, around where the world of learning is heading and ways in which your focus on early childhood has maybe given you some perspective that could inform a broader understanding of the future of learning? Absolutely. The systems that we've built, this personalized
1: mastery learning system, and the ecosystem, as we think about it on top of it, you look at uh, educational technology generally and education generally, the transition to digital, it's behind other sectors. So, yeah, you look what happened, has happened in music or video or in uh, retail and in education it is certainly catching up now. A part of it is that as, as you think about the, the early days of most technology, it's a platform to redistribute what we've done successfully in another medium and usually the physical medium so Mm -hmm. you look at a lot of the ways that we're approaching educational technology now it is either used to connect individuals to do traditional type instructions and or to use you know classroom videos and and making the the cost of of reach really low what is interesting and and, and in parallel to the move in mobile which moved from some of that same activity where Mobile devices early on started as, well, wow, it could be a music player. And if you think about iPhone as a music player or, or the iPod that preceded it, and then how it is transitioned into be really a fully interactive experience. And I think as we think about the work, where do we, where we start with, how do we do this interactively? You know, we, we absolutely brought in the master teachers to think through best practices, in terms of how they would do it in classroom, we we translated that into how did we do that best interactively. Yeah. So our assumption wasn't that offline experience is what you needed to replicate interactively. It's like, how do we do that best interactively to achieve the same result or better yeah. and gather data that it's actually doing what we wanted to. So this whole idea of building interactive platforms at scale, building education with an active learning component from the get-go. Versus just taking the offline models and trying to squeeze it into these devices that are capable of doing so much more. And then generating data for insights to say, is that approach working? Is there an approach that may work better? And how do we keep on driving this this flywheel towards better and better outcomes at scale? So not only can we do it for our students in the U.S., but we can bring our products to students around the globe at low cost and, and better results is something that we're super excited about.
0: Yeah. And then this immediately brought me to the metaverse as you're trying to think about where the next forms of interaction and new data streams are going to be generated. There's a lot of talk lately around the rising Web3 technologies. I'm sure you probably have some takes on this. There is some hype cycle going on right now, but there are elements of the rich visual design and interactive landscape that is unlocks through things like virtual reality and augmented reality. Any perspective from you on that emerging technology space? Yeah, I think there's a lot there. We work with primarily younger kids, as
1: you know, and the, the technology coming down, there's a lot we can do, as we talked about, and unlock with the existing technology that we have now that we will wait for this to play out a little bit versus looking at this and saying it's a panacea because mm-hmm. it, it, it you think about our ecosystem and our fragmentation schools and budgets and such it's going to be a while before the devices are able to support what is web three or metaverse and you know virtual worlds and we, we participate in virtual worlds we have a consumer product adventure academy that is immersive environment for learning but our bet is really let's focus fundamentally on how do we achieve better outcomes with the technologies that are accessible in our in our educational system and accessible to the most most students and most children rather than you know overshoot that mark because there's so much there's so much green to be covered let's say to help students
0: and unlock this potential that we've been talking about absolutely this is where if there's any words of advice places you found inspiration ways to motivate our listeners we're getting closer to the big finale here yeah, you know, and I think as a company age of learning, what
1: we we recognize and realize is that that we need to set high expectations on ourselves because what we do know and what we have learned is that our students and our kids are really capable of learning, and they have a real desire to learn. and And the biggest lessons are that we are will continue to double triple down on what we are doing, and we and others will as well as we develop this new ecosystem where we have this incredible opportunity to unlock human potential, you know, for future generations, which is really all of our future. And, and it's an exciting time to be in educational technology and doing
0: the great work that we're doing and look forward to continuing it. Awesome. Sunil Guderia, the Chief Innovation Officer at Age of Learning. Thanks so much for joining us on today's episode. It's, it's been great to be here and we look forward to talking to you again, Michael. Thank you. And if folks want to be, if they're curious based on the conversation we just had, where do you recommend they go? We started with
1: ageoflearning.com. It has a lot of additional information. And of course, if you have younger kids and you're looking for something at home, abcmouse.com is a great resource for all families with young kids.
0: Awesome. Thanks again to Sunil. Hopefully our listeners enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Don't forget to write a review. Tell your friends about Trending in Ed. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.